This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Program. You're listening to 3CR. This is my first show back since a long and much-needed break. Over these past six months, I have watched the news very closely. It has become clear that Australia's backing of fossil fuel exports are becoming increasingly untenable. The US has rejoined the Paris Agreement. In October, China vowed to reach net zero by 2060, quickly followed by South Korea and Japan. This Asian tsunami away from coal is a huge proportion of our coal exports, which accounts for over 55% in 2018. And where does this position Australia with our alliance to coal and the prospect of a gas-led recovery? What is likely to happen to our domestic politics that has for over a decade been defined by an increasing commitment to fossil fuels? And finally, what are Australia's options to get out of the sticky situation we're in? To find out, we'll be speaking with policy doyen Professor Ross Garneau about Australia taking the quantum shift to become a renewable energy superpower. We'll also be speaking with ACF's democracy campaigner Jolene Elberth about the relationship between money and politics when the money starts to dry up. First up, though, to get a sense of the impact of the huge shifts in climate commitments over the past six months, we're speaking with Tim Buckley. 3CR, here to stay. So Tim Buckley is the Director of Energy Finance Studies at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Tim is expertly placed to foresee how Australia's energy export prospects are likely to change as our export partners move away from coal and commit to net zero energy targets. We had Tim on the show midway through last year and are very happy to have him back, this time on a pre-recorded Zoom call. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time. What an exciting moment. Thanks, Kurt. Great to be back again. Now, Tim, taking it from the top, can you please explain how the Australian coal industry's long-term prospects have changed over the past six months? Yeah, they, they've solidified might be rather than changed. I mean, if you'd asked me six months ago or two years ago, I would have said the inevitable outcome is that thermal coal exports are in terminal decline. They're on a terminal trajectory. The question, though, is, is that a 10, 20 or 30 year trajectory or 40 years? Now, if you'd asked the New South Wales government three years ago, oh, that's right, we did, they forecast that demand would grow 1.2% per annum in volume terms, 4% per annum in value terms for the next 40 years. And I'm going, hang on, it's directionally wrong and the trajectory is wrong as well. Like you're going in the wrong direction and you're probably going to see it decline at 3% per annum rather than increase at one. And so they're, I mean, just diametrically opposed to reality. And uh, unfortunately, that group think is still very much there. And you can see that when the New South Wales government's constantly trying to approve new coal mines. And I mean, our Deputy Prime Minister has a little uh, Deputy Premier, sorry, the Deputy Prime Minister as well, but the Deputy Premier has a spat when the Independent Planning Commission acts independently 
um, how dare they act independently according to their mandate and reject coal mine under the New South Wales water catchment area. And so the Premier says, let's throw the IPC out. How dare they um, actually act on climate change or act in the interest of protecting the people of New South Wales and, and give us drinkable water. Uh, but how, why I say it's solidified is that everything changed, I think, when China uh, announced their massive ratcheting up of ambition. So President Z, huge kudos to him. Uh, we haven't seen the detail of it, but every week I'm getting extra inclinations that say this is going to be way beyond anyone's expectations. And in fact, the National Energy Authority um, of China, like one of the most powerful bodies in the world in China, um, got audited unexpectedly because they failed to implement the thoughts of President Xi, right? And you go, hang on, you don't fail in Chinese parlance without losing your head, literally. And uh, the most powerful energy body in the country and hence in the world has actually been audited. They've been given 30 days to reply for why they're still approving coal plants. Why aren't they going back and removing all the approvals they've already given? Like that is the summary of what just happened. And so the Chinese press actually reported it as the um, speed of transition is going to be unimaginable. Now, the Chinese have great imaginations. They think generationally. And if they're saying it's going to be unimaginable speed, uh, buckle your seatbelts up. This is going to be a very exciting year for 2021. But uh, I mean, no, I don't want to downplay the importance of uh Prime Minister Suga's uh, announcement, the pledge in Japan, net zero by 2050, really, really important. The world's fourth biggest electricity market jumping on board. I mean, since Fukushima, they've been a laggard on climate policy because their entire climate policy got thrown out the window when Fukushima exploded. Um, and so like, nuclear was a zero emissions technology for all its other sins. Um, so you know, Japan's now back on board and working aggressively. And then on top of that, you had um, President Moon Jae-in of Korea, again, net zero emissions by Korea, the sixth largest electricity market in the world, the 12th largest economy, one of the G20. And so you've got this groundswell, but it gets even more exciting. In January, President Biden, fortunately for the world, got elected and his climate executive order of the 27th of January, and I've only ever read maybe two executive orders in my life, so it's certainly the most exciting executive order I've ever written, and I would recommend your listeners read it because if you want to be positive, read what the president, the most powerful man in the world, is saying, and he's all in on climate. It's one of his top four priorities. And it just simple things like let's can all fossil fuel subsidies with immediate effect. Well, we've been talking about that for 20 years. The IEA has been, the International Energy Agency has been advising about that for 20 years and no one's done anything about it. And in fact, our prime minister says there are no subsidies for coal because of course not. We wouldn't subsidise a polluting product like fossil fuels, but of course we do. Now, President Biden's going to can all fossil fuel subsidies with immediate effect thanks to that executive order. He's going to stop all subsidised export financing with immediate effect thanks to that executive order. He's going to bring in a social cost of carbon. Now, not something we've heard of. Oh, that's right. We had a price on carbon. Uh, we got rid of it after two years because it was too effective. It was what exactly what every economist was saying we should do. But no, no, let's not do anything to do. Our, we're a leaner, not a lifter, according to our prime minister. 
President Biden has made an executive order. We're going to have a social cost of carbon. And by the way, it'll be 50 or 100 US dollars a tonne, not 10, not 20, not 40 euros like it is in Europe today, the highest it's ever been, 50 to 100. And by the way, immediately, if by executive order, don't worry about going through parliament. We're just going to legislate it through the executive order, work out the details later. Every policy decision of the US government now has to take into account a social cost of carbon. That is great. So America has not only just rejoined the Paris Agreement, they're now actually starting to be a leader. Like, I don't know, the idea that a politician would lead is, is a little strange in the Australian context, but I think President Biden will be a leader like Angela Merkel, who's been a leader for 20 years in Germany. And I think China is being a world leader on this. So I'm pretty bullish, as you can probably just hear from my voice. Um, and I've read um, about uh, Cole's second life. So what is this theory and, and, and what's its validity? Kurt, a great mind singer like. I'm actually writing a report on coal. There is no second life for coal right now. I don't know if I told you that, but uh, that's no. exactly the report I'm working on because uh, in India, for example, like I was just uh, reading the investor briefing of Coal India, the world's biggest coal company. All right, it's Indian, Coal India. It's majority government owned, but it's listed. So therefore, we have access to the chairman of the company. He has to explain what his thinking is. And a couple of weeks ago, he announced he was going to diversify into aluminium refining and into solar wafer manufacturing. And I'm going, oh, great, anything but coal is a great strategy from my perspective. But it was interesting. He got taken, like normally the investors and the analysts in India are so polite to the chairman. I mean, the chairman is the doyen of the Indian society. Um, but the investors are going, oh, excuse me, chairman, no, you've just announced a strategy to diversify into coal. We, out of coal, we like your idea of diversifying, but aluminium in India gets a rate of return that's about half the cost of capital in the last 20 years on average. So you're going to diversify into a value-destroying sector with our money? Uh, I don't think you are. And then the chairman goes, oh, sorry, we haven't committed to doing that. We just put out a press release saying we we're going to do it. That doesn't mean we'll do it. We're just, we have to find a second life of this company because coal is dead on a 20-year view. And so he said, okay, we probably, you're right, we probably won't go into aluminium, but we'll go into solar. Solar is great. That's aligned with the government. It's totally cost effective, but you know nothing about it. Oh, well, we'll learn. Okay. So, okay, that's better than pissing money up against the wall on more coal. But then he goes, look, at the end of the day, there is no prospect of coal being the power source of the Indian electricity market on a 20-year view. And so we need a second life. Now, what we are looking at is things like coal, underground coal gasification, coal to liquids, coal to methanol, coal to urea, coal to oil, anything that you can use a massive, like India's got the fourth biggest coal resources in the world. So he's saying, well, if we're not going to use it for power, what can we use it for? Let's actually diversify and explore that. Now, the trouble is, We've been looking at coal to methanol, coal to oil, coal to fertiliser, coal to urea, coal to all these different underground coal gasification. Just go and ask the Queensland government how good underground coal gasification mm -hmm. is. I mean, farmers can't even plough their fields in, in a big chunk of Queensland because of the failed coal underground coal gasification of Link Energy uh, a decade ago, uh, which, of course, the company went bankrupt and destroyed prime agricultural land and left that disaster for the taxpayers of Queensland. 
But now India's proposing the same thing, but it will end up in exactly the same place, just an absolute waste of investor capital and the projects aren't commercially viable. Now, I doubt they'll actually ever get built because it, the idea there is some second life for coal, no chance. But India has to think that way and I understand why because they import 85% of their oil. And so when Prime Minister Modi is sitting there worrying about the energy security of his nation, he's not just talking about getting off coal. He's actually more worried about the current account deficit and worried about trying to move away from fossil fuels entirely because they're mostly imported. And that kills his currency. It kills his interest rates. It kills his inflation rate. It kills his economic growth. And so in India, there's this balance between, OK, we want to use domestic energy, meaning hydro, wind, solar and coal to diversify, uh, diversify away from fossil fuels. But within the context of that, it's still got to be commercially viable. And the reality is there is no second life of coal. There is no commercially viable application. South Africa's proven that. China's proven that. Australia's proven it. So unfortunately, India's just going to repeat the same lessons, fail to learn from history. I think that was a split end song, wasn't it? <laughs> I think so. I think so. And And all these massive, um, huge developments that are happening globally, have coal producers or the investment community in Australia shown any sign that they are worried about the prospects of coal? How insulated are we from that? Um, not at all. Not at all insulated. And in fact, investors are absolutely, I mean, I would argue they're running for the door or they're almost stampeding for the door now. And you're getting some unusual outcomes. Like we saw recently ANZ refused to refinance the Port of Newcastle. And that was... Um, I, mean, I was talking to the management of the Port of Newcastle. They were really unhappy about it because obviously their financing just went out the door and they've fortunately got another bank to refinance them. But they're not trying to expand. They're coal. They're actually wedded to coal because 90% of their volumes are coal. And so they're rapidly trying to invest and diversify the port into every other product that they could think of. Um, but ANZ's come back and said, but when you're 95% coal, how do you diversify from that when coal's going to zero on a 20, maybe 30-year view, irrespective, whether it's 10, 20 or 30 years, that's terminal decline and the port's got a 100-year life or a 1,000-year life. It's an, it's an evergreen product, but it's not worth anything more than when it's selling coal. It's not worth anything. And in fact, it can't fund its interest, let alone repay its capital. And so ANZ took a pretty harsh line. ANZ had, had got kudos for saying, we will work with our major customers to transition. And then all of a sudden, three months later, they're cutting and running from their biggest coal exposure and saying, no, nah, we want nothing to do with it. But that is because they looked at the port and said there is no successful diversification strategy. The chair, the board, the management are all focused on it, but they can't find one because unfortunately the port is crowded with coal and the New South Wales government is not interested in a diversification strategy. So ANZ and the board of the Port of Newcastle are both right. ANZ is protecting their shareholders from a stranded asset and the Port of Newcastle is desperately trying to do everything it can to diversify. But unfortunately, the pig in the middle is the, Queensland, is the New South Wales government just refusing to allow them to diversify. And so you end up with a stranded asset. 
Great. So, and, and coal is obviously the worst polluting mineral, but, but how broad is the impact across the fossil fuel sector likely to be? Um, do, do, do any of the countries involved in that the Asian tsunami that you, you uh, mentioned before, which is obviously uh, China, South Korea and, and Japan, does any of that have any impact on the viability of Morrison's gas-led recovery, for example? I think that is the question of 2021. The idea that coal's dead man walking, I think I've used the phrase a couple of times, I mean, that's just a given in finance. Okay, not in Scott Morrison's office and not in the Minerals Council. Oh, sorry, the same thing. Um, But in any commercial organisation in the world, that's understood. Like, just read Dr Kerry Schott's work in the AFR last week. We're going to see accelerated, unplanned coal power plant closures on a very rapid basis. They're not viable and investors won't stand behind them. So to me, the big question for 2021 is, as you said, what about fossil fuels rather than coal? And let's talk about the big one for Australia. We are the world's equal biggest exporter of liquid natural gas, fossil gas. Uh, It is just as emissions intensive as coal when burnt in a power plant, when you look at the whole supply chain. Now, that's a point that the PR spin that comes out of APIA, the gas lobbyists, I mean, they'll run a million miles away before they acknowledge that, but that is a statement of fact. On a 20 or 30 year view, methane gas is worse for our climate trajectory than coal is. And I think that's what finance is now grappling with. They're now actually thinking about gas. They've drunk the Kool-Aid for a decade, gas is a transition fuel, fossil gas. Let's actually, rather than move to net zero, let's expand production of fossil fuels. Well, hang on, we need to get off fossil fuels. That means reduce production. The best way to reduce production is to increase production. Oh, I didn't go to that economic school of logic, but Scott Morrison did. Um, But it's tortuous, impossible logic that is absolutely not founded on science. Now, we actually need to, the thing that we've learned with the pandemic is you accept the science and you act on the science. And I think the world's really understood with COVID now, we actually have a bigger global threat. It's called climate change. It's an existential threat. It is a threat to everyone. It requires everyone to muck in, unlike what Scott Morrison says, is he wants Australia to be a leaner. Joe Biden's not going to let Australia be a leaner. So I predict by the time you go to where Scott Morrison will have a net zero before 2050 policy. Um, but anyway, that's, I'm happy to take your money if you want to run that one. But uh, I just can't believe Australia will not kowtow to the President of America. If the President of America says you will do it, we will do it. It's only a matter of how he dances his way through the absolute minefield of his own party room because he's got the nutters from the National Party in there telling him to fund more coal. I think I'm probably rambling a bit. Let's go back to gas. Um, So with gas, when you look at the trajectory of gas globally, I think you have to start with the premise, we've got to get to net zero. That is what China, Europe, UK, South Korea, Japan, and America have all just committed to. Now, I think they actually mean it. And if you mean you're going to get to net zero within three decades, that probably means you've got to stop producing more fossil fuels, number one, and then you've got to work out how you reduce your consumption of existing fossil fuels. Now, we, Australia, keep building more fossil fuels, more LNG, more coking coal, more thermal coal, and there is no buyer for that product. So I think we are fundamentally threatened by the fact that all of our trade partners 
are going to reduce aggressively their exposure to all of these products. And so the question is not how do they do it because they're working that out right now. No, they were debating whether it was commercially viable five years ago. Today, they're just going, well, it's not about viability. We have no choice. And so how do we do it? So when the Ministry of Energy, Trade and Industry in Japan says we're going to move to 100% green ammonia by early 2040s, that is a terminal event for thermal coal use. And by the way, Japan, METI, the Ministry of Energy, Trade and Industry, is the most powerful body in Japan. And they've just said their use of thermal coal will cease within 20 years. So that puts a 20-year time frame on our exports, not a 30-year time frame, a 20-year time frame. Now, the same logic will be applied to gas. If you say gas is actually more emissions intensive on a 20 or 30-year view than coal, then Japan pivoting from coal to gas does nothing to help the climate. And so that is what the global finance industry is now grappling with. Can you deliver on net zero if you don't use fossil gas? And that's where the hype on green hydrogen has really taken off because the gas industry initially grabbed green hydrogen and said, oh, if we can sort of sell another PR spin that if we produce fossil hydrogen, then in 30 years' time, we can pivot to green hydrogen. Well, no. Why would we bother developing a whole new industry called fossil hydrogen when we actually want to produce green hydrogen? So people like Andrew Forrest are going, oh, let's spend, I don't know, a quarter of a trillion dollars building the world's biggest green hydrogen facilities. And let's do it really bloody fast and let's go all in. Like quarter of a trillion dollars, one company, and that's Australia's richest man, and he's all in on it. So I don't think it's about what we're going to do it's just how you do it and what are the mechanisms and how do you deal with the stranded assets that result now unfortunately we are the world's biggest producer of lng we're the world's biggest producer of coking coal we're the second biggest exporter of thermal coal and so we've got a huge number of stranded assets thank you so much for your time tim that's that's a really fascinating cross-section that moves um yeah I, I i really enjoyed getting that big global picture and seeing how it applies to um to uh, Australia, but we'll definitely have that um, Biden's uh, executive order. We'll put that in the show notes, but thanks so much for the time, Tim. No problem, Kurt. Always happy to, to speak. And as you can tell, I think it's going to be a really exciting year. Mm. 2021 is a year of action. And in fact, to me, it's a technology race. It's a race that we've now got all the major economies in the world racing towards a solution. And I love nothing better than a race. I don't care whether green hydrogen or electric vehicles win, so long as one of them does. And that's now inevitable. And that's why Scott Morrison's launched his let's ignore electric vehicles let's go all in on internal combustion engines because he wants to drag us back 40 years when every other country is racing forward a couple of decades so it's going to be an interesting time it's going to be a dangerous time for the australian economy but the reality is economics will win finance will move anyway and scott morrison will have to just at some point blow with the wind i can't wait to see how you're uh, to, to see how our bet to see whether Scott Morrison will uh, pledge to zero by 2050 uh, before two weeks' time when we're recording this. But, uh, how thanks. quickly will he move? Thanks yeah. very much, Kurt. Thanks, Tim. Hi, Man's here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, 
The embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews state government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, the Directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign, and spread the word. 3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. Professor Ross Garneau has been the most important climate policy strategist in Australia over the past two decades. His work reviewing the economics of a carbon price profoundly influenced the policy decisions of the Rudd and Gillard governments. His 2019 book, Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity, reframes the exhausted debate on climate change in Australia from necessary sacrifice to economic opportunity. Most recently, New South Wales Minister for the Environment and Energy, Matt Keane, made the goal that New South Wales would commit to net zero carbon by 2050 and use language eerily similar to that in Garneau's book. His most recent book, Reset, addresses COVID as another economic opportunity for Australia to rethink our strategic direction. Professor Garneau, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our show. Hello, Kurt. Hi. Hi. Now... Can you quickly try and convince any listeners that doubt Australia's capacity to become a renewable energy superpower, why they might rethink their position? Are there any left, Kurt? Uh, (laughs) We've been talking about the book for uh, 16 months now. Um, But uh, the first thing to note is that a very big thing has changed since uh, Superpower. Uh, Superpower is a story about how reductions in the costs of, of uh, renewable energy uh, uh, and uh, increased awareness of the role of carbon in the landscape had made the transition uh, from the old uh, fossil energy economy to a, a new zero emissions economy uh, much cheaper than we thought it would be, in, and that Australia would have a very rich role uh, in in uh, that zero carbon world economy if we played our cards right. What's happened since then, and uh, uh, I talk about this in uh, the new book, uh, Reset, Restoring Australia After the Pandemic Recession, uh, is that uh, all of the developed world countries, uh, uh, except Australia, uh, and and also uh, China, uh, China along with the developed world, have committed themselves to zero net emissions by the middle of the century. Now, the implications uh, of that for Australia are huge, whether or not Australia embraces its very large opportunity. Uh, the, what that means is that certainly all the developed countries in China uh, will be 
um, uh, making uh, everything they need uh, with zero emissions by well, 40 years from now. Uh, and uh, in that world, uh, Australia can make a lot of things uh, more cheaply than others. We've got the best combinations of renewable energy in, in the world, uh, the best combinations of um, uh, solar and wind energy. Uh, they're together in, uh, in, in very high quality in many parts of our continent, that's unusual. And that gives us the chance to, to, uh, to make things that are made out of energy much more cheaply than others. Uh, of course, uh, uh, we, we have to uh, be knowledgeable about how we go about doing that. We, we have to have good policies. We have to have businesses uh, able to take advantage of the opportunity. But if we do those basic things right, uh, we've, we've got very big advantages. And uh, um, just to take extreme cases, uh, great industrial countries like Korea and uh, Japan and, um, and Germany, uh, in the uh, fossil energy economy, uh, use a lot of coal um, uh, and other fossil fuels uh, to, um, to, to, to make uh, manufactured goods for the whole world. And they can quite easily import coal from the rest of the world. Uh, Germany's got coal of its own, but uh, also imports coal, used to import a lot from Australia, still does a bit. Uh, and uh, uh, Korea and, and Japan import Australian and Indonesian and other coal. If they want to make steel, you need, under current technologies, a, a lot of uh, metallurgical coal for the for, to supply the carbon to extract the oxygen out of iron oxide to make iron metal. Well, they'd simply import the uh, the the, um, the coal that they need. Well, in the zero emissions uh, world economy, they won't be using. Uh, uh, coal for uh, extracting the oxygen out of uh, iron ore to, to leave iron metal. Uh, the most efficient route's likely to be hydrogen. Uh, in the zero emissions world economy, that has to be hydrogen made from renewable energy and not uh, from natural gas or coal. And the lowest cost place to do that, if we play our cards right, is Australia. We've also got the advantage of the iron ore is here to start with a lot of other minerals as well that require uh, a lot of energy uh, or a lot of, lot of uh, some reductant that can uh, take out oxygen in the processing. Uh, and, uh, and so Australia is economically the, the natural place to locate these industries. And we're not talking about something small, just the extraction of, um, uh, of the uh, iron, uh, uh, metal out of iron ore, out of iron oxide, taking away the oxygen in iron oxide to make iron metal, accounts for about 7% of global emissions, about seven times total Australian emissions. Well, Australia is by far the biggest exporter of iron ore to world markets and uh, uh, turn all of that uh, into iron metal at home uh, using zero emissions um, uh, Australian renewable energy uh, turned into hydrogen uh, then uh, you, you've increased global emissions by an amount that's uh, nearly seven times total Australian emissions. We could tell similar, although smaller stories for a lot of other uh, minerals. So this is a huge opportunity for Australia, a huge part that Australia can play uh, in the global movement to a zero emissions economy. Yeah, and and... We've seen in the US how, just how, how quickly things can change. Biden said, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. 
and obviously use two problems, which is deindustrialization and, and climate change to neutralize uh, one another, and which is exactly what, what you've proposed uh, in, in your books. But uh, I guess the, the big chasm that I see between what, you, what you've proposed, which is really exciting new thinking, uh, is, is the political will, and, and in particular what Richard Dennis said in your talk uh, last week, which was very antiquated thinking amongst our, uh, our leaders. Have you seen any evidence that we could develop the political will to, to, to realise your vision here? Yes, I have, and you've already quoted Matt Cain. Um, uh, if, if you want evidence, look at what he said to the New South Wales Parliament in introducing his legislation last November. Look what he said uh, on the Renew Economy podcast in talking about that last November. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, the state governments of Australia and the territory governments are, are all uh, are elected by parts of the same electorate that elects our Commonwealth government. And every state and every territory has committed itself to, um, to uh, uh, zero emissions by 2050. And uh, every one of them has got some policies in place that will help in getting there, some uh, more advanced than others, but uh, no reason to doubt that any uh, will, get, uh, will fail to uh, put in place relevant policies. So don't, so don't give up on Australia's uh, 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 voters. Don't give up on Australia's uh, capacity for political will. There's only mm -hmm. one place it's missing, uh, and that's in the Commonwealth Parliament. Uh, yes, and you and you did mention in uh, in in Superpower how much your vision hinged on uh, energy uh, regulation and and how that is really hamstrung hamstringing. Uh, this this uh, being realised, do you do you anticipate that that, given what a poison chalice it's been historically, do you think it's possible um, that they, we could see federal uh, reform in that area? Yes, we, we had uh, world-leading federal policies only uh, only seven years ago, uh, so uh, that, that proves it's possible. If it's happened, then it's possible. Um, uh, sure, the the the, uh, the well has been the well of uh, carbon pricing has been poisoned since then. I point out in superpower that we can get a fair way. We can do a lot of things without carbon pricing. Although, as I say in the new book, reset um, uh, in the two chapters uh, that, that are really uh, are talking about the role of um, uh, of building the superpower in the recovery from pandemic. I, I say there that. We'd go faster, do better uh, if we had carbon pricing, but we can go quite a long way without it. May very well be that Biden in the United States uh, gets has to uh, get by without carbon pricing as well. Uh, he's committed to putting 1.7 trillion US dollars uh, into uh, uh, the uh, climate and energy transition, uh, and he sees that as part of the the. Um, uh, recovery strategies from the pandemic. Uh, if we did something similar, uh, then that would have a huge uh, uh, impact on moving us towards uh, zero emissions, uh, helping to build the superpower. We could do even better with carbon pricing, but we can get quite a long way without it. Yes, yes. And you uh, mentioned what a huge uh, proportion of their GDP America is, is, is committing to climate action. Um, 
And and <laughs> do you, let's have a look at what uh, TAC Australia is is taking post uh, post COVID and as part of this recovery. What do you think are the economic uh, consequences of Australia pursuing their um, Scott Morrison's gas-led recovery? Uh, well, uh, it's a it, it's a bit of a dead end. Um, there are some ways in which uh, gas can play a bit of a role, uh, and I mentioned two of those uh, in the book. If you have got an opportunity for low-cost capturing of emissions from burning gas, using it for energy or using it in industry, capturing the emissions and securely storing them, then it's possible that there'll be some industries which are near zero emissions based on gas that could play a role. I don't think it'll be a big one. We don't have many... Uh, of those favourable geological sites, uh, we might have one in the uh, in the in the Cooper Basin where uh, a lot of work's been done on that. Remember, um, probably do have one there. Uh, we don't have transmission uh, uh, for taking power from there at the moment. But but if there were uh, an opportunity for low cost capture and uh, storage of emissions, uh, that could produce. Um, zero or near zero emissions, uh, uh, electricity or industrial products. And I wouldn't rule that out. It's just that generally uh, capture and storage of emissions is expensive and it will make the activities uh, 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 uncompetitive except in the very best locations. Another role uh, could be in the uh, early stages of transition away from coal uh, in iron making. Uh, the direct reduction processes uh, that currently produce about 70 million tonnes a year of iron in the world without using coal uh, rely on natural gas. Well, you cut emissions by about half if you go from uh, using coal to using natural gas. We've got to cut them to zero. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is that if you're using gas for that purpose in, in, a, uh, um, in, in equipment that... Um, uh, involves um, uh, uh, direct reduction of iron ore into iron, you can insert hydrogen into the process and gradually increase the hydrogen pr uh, proportion so that if uh, hydrogen is more expensive in the very early stages before we've got real scale of production and brought the cost down, uh, you could start with a mixture and then gradually, gradually increase a renewable hydrogen until it was providing 100% of the total. Uh, but generally, uh, uh, gas, uh, 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 because uh, of its emissions intensity, won't play uh, a, a big part in either the pandemic recovery uh, or the uh, uh, transition to a zero emissions economy. If we're realistic, it will play some niche roles some useful niche roles, but uh, we certainly won't have anything that we could call a gas-based recovery. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, in reset, you said that a return to dog days, which is uh, what you call the years um, leading up to the pandemic um, after the, the GFC, returning back to those conditions is not a desirable thing. Um why why is why is that so 
Well, they weren't great times for uh, uh, most Australians, weren't great times economically. Uh, uh, that's why it's not desirable. Average output per person in Australia, economic output, didn't increase at all through the dog days from 2013 to 2019. But that's pretty unusual. And Australia was just about the worst performer of all the developed countries, worse even than Japan, where, that we uh, think of as a pretty poor performer economically. Well, output per person rose more rapidly in Japan uh, than in Australia. And when you don't have output per person increasing, it's hard for uh, incomes of ordinary people to increase. In Australia, we had rising income inequality in that period. So for a lot of Australians, real incomes uh, actually fell. So we don't want to go back there. It's also a time of persistent unemployment, uh, doggedly high unemployment in the dog days, uh, stuck uh, around five point something uh, uh, percent unemployment. The US during that period brought but um, unemployment down from well over uh, our 5.5% at the beginning of the period down to 3.5%. We were just stuck at that five point something. During those years, underemployment rose a lot uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and that made uh, um, opportunities for employment uh, much poorer for many Australians. In addition, the, those dog days were years when we didn't deal with climate change. Of course, we did at the beginning from the middle of 2012 to the middle of 2014, where emissions came down strongly uh, and in, in ways that uh, uh, were economically uh, uh, very efficient. Um, when we had carbon pricing, as well as the Renewable Energy Agency, the CEFC and other uh, climate institutions, uh, we lost carbon pricing in the middle of 2014, um, uh, and uh, that slowed down uh, the reduction in emissions. And by the end of the period, we, we really were a laggard in global terms. So we don't want to go back to the dog days for any of those reasons. No, no. Um... And finally, are you able to give us uh, uh, an update on what is happening with Sunshot and um, the Wyala uh, Steelworks? Well, uh, we had a, uh, a, a joint... Uh, we merged our company, our old companies, and Energy, my colleagues and I, uh, mostly South Australian-based, uh, into uh, Sanjeev Gupta's group for a while. And in that context, we were uh, working with Sanjeev on decarbonisation of uh, uh, the, the processes uh, leading to steelmaking in Wyala. Uh, last year, we, we uh, implemented a uh, demerger. Um, we did that uh, um, because uh, we, we had similar broad visions, but uh, Sanjeev was uh, mostly focused on his immediate industrial enterprises. We, wanted to play a broader role in the Australian energy transition. So we had a friendly demerger, but I, I've kept in touch um, and uh, uh, with Sanjeev and uh, um, uh, he's serious about uh, um, re restructuring the YL Steelworks at first with an electric, electric arc uh, uh, furnace yep. that will produce more steel from scrap later on from using the direct reduction I use I talked about earlier, um, but uh, it's a big and complicated project and, and he's got uh, a lot of interest in the rest of the world. I noticed news about him uh, 
in France about hydrogen-based mm. making in France. So, um, well, it's not the only thing on his mind, but I know that uh, it is one of the things on his mind, and uh, I'm very much hopeful that that he'll get there, that he'll make uh, Wyala an example of how you can make uh, steel competitively uh, with zero emissions. Great. That sounds fantastic. And, and um, thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, Professor Garneau. And um, we uh, will link uh, Reset and Superpower in the, in the show notes and uh, Dog Days as well, because I think they, they really form a, um, a, a, a trio of, of books which um, are able to state our current position in, and, and uh, prospects for the future, uh, particularly with regards to the economics of um, climate, uh, climate action and re renewables. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, very nice to talk to you, Kurt, and good luck to all your listeners. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Mans here from the Japarong Embassy. On October the 26th, after two and a half years of defending sacred women's country, the embassy, family, friends and supporters were forcibly removed from country by Victoria Police. The Andrews state government, alongside Major Roads Projects Victoria, have begun their violent attack to desecrate the sovereign lands of the Japarong to make way for the duplication of the Western Highway between Buangal and Ararat. There are many old growth trees, one significant tree in particular, a 350-year-old yellow box gum, the Directions tree. She's a placenta tree who holds the DNA of the Japarong ancestors. She was felled by a chainsaw at the hands of a government that is asking for a treaty with its first peoples. The embassy and its frontline protectors are calling out for your help. To find out more, including how to get to the embassy to help defend on the ground, visit the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy's Facebook page. Educate yourself, donate to their chuff campaign, and spread the word. 3CR supports the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaty. The perception that Australia is an open and transparent democracy is vital to our international reputation. This perception has taken numerous hits over, a part, over the past few years, especially when it became apparent that our response to climate action was out of step with the desires of the vast majority of the population. At last count, 82% of Australians want action on climate change, according to the Australian Institute's Climate of the Nation survey. Jolene Elberth is Australian Conservation Foundation's democracy campaigner. Jolene has a deep understanding of how democracy in this country is being undermined by money and influence from various industries, in particular the fossil fuel lobby, how this impacts the decision-making process of our politicians. Jolene, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks, Kurt. Good to be here. Um, can you just describe the relationship between lobby groups, political donations and policy decision-making at a federal level? Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's a pretty dark and nebulous uh, sort of relationship. I think part of the, the real problem that we have in Australia is a severe lack of transparency of what's going on. And so 
it's actually really hard to, to be able to explain it and see what's happening. Um, you know, anyone who walks the halls of, of Parliament and, uh, you know, spends any time in Parliament House will tell you that uh, it's filled with uh, lobbyists, paid professional lobbyists, both from companies and also um, working as third-party lobbyist organizations representing corporations. Um, and so they're in and out of um, our elected representatives' offices all, all day uh, during sitting weeks. Um, we in Australia have some of the weakest donations um, and, trans and transparency laws around political finance. Um, you know, and, and one of the main things I think to keep in mind when we're thinking about how donations influence politics in Australia is it's not necessarily the, the big donations where someone gives, you know, a, a $20,000 donation to one of our political parties and gets X outcome. What we see in Australia is both lobbyists, corporations, using donations to get that extra influence and access to our decision makers. They're buying seats at fundraising events. Um, you know, they're, they're using these small repeated donations in order to be able to sit down next to our ministers and kind of influence the policy decisions that are happening. Right, that's, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and is this level of influence that you're describing here similar across both the major parties? Um, look, we've we've been under a coalition government for quite some time now, um, but we have done the analysis and looked at donation records um, to both of the major parties. And um, the ALP still accepts a lot of donations from the fossil fuel industry. Um, when you compare the two, what you see is that the ALP has more donations from gas industries, um, whereas the coalition primarily has um, traditionally had a lot of donations from the coal and oil industries. Um, however, I think that's that's changing even as we speak, and we're seeing more and more um, influence coming from the gas sector. Right, right. And, and uh, last year, I spoke with uh, New South Wales Energy Environment Minister Matt Keane, who is leading uh, the Electricity Infrastructure Roadmap. And, and that his position really stands in stark contrast to the LNP's federal energy policy. Why do you think that the Liberal Party states behave so differently from federal uh, LNP? Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I think there's a few things at play. Um, we're seeing lots of positive movement at the state level because I think states are being forced to jump in and fill a vacuum of leadership at the federal level, right? As, as you said, the Australian public wants to see action on climate change. So we can look at the Tassie Liberal government that has a target to double its renewable energy to 200% by 2040. The South Australian Liberal governments are increasingly getting more and more of its energy from renewables. And even the WA Liberals have a stronger climate policy than the WA ALP. Um, you know, the, the world is moving towards renewable energy and cutting climate pollution and states are actually stepping up to take action. At the federal level, uh, it's no secret that the National Party has been captured by the mining sector. Um, you know, and of course, the coalition holds power by a very narrow margin, and they really need the, na the natural National Party to maintain that power. So what we see is that the nationals and, and therefore the mining sector are able to exert an extraordinary amount of control over federal mm. climate policy. Right, right. And I'm, I'm also interested in uh, Australia's international standing. Do you have any sense of how the quality of Australian democracy rates in comparison with other developed countries? 
Look, if we're comparing democracy um, and how well our democracy is functioning, I would say that Australia democracy is Australian democracy is quite strong, and I think Australians have a lot of things to be proud about our democracy. Um, in you know, in terms of how the influence from the fossil fuel industry on our democracy is perceived, it's it's a bit hard to speculate about that. But I have no doubt that world leaders understand the influence fossil fuel industry has on politics, um, you know, because they're likely to have similar experiences. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, and now some would say this is just how sort of politics, what you were saying before, the way that uh, money and influence walk the halls of power in, in, in Canberra, that's just how politics is done in 2021. Like you had the New South Wales Deputy Premier saying that the bushfire grants and buying votes was just what elections are for and what elections are for, that's a quote. This um, poses an increasingly brazen equation between money and votes. How transparent is the relationship between money and votes uh, relative to Australia, uh, to, to other countries in Australia? Yeah, look, firstly, I absolutely reject the notion that that's just how democracy works. And I would, you know, wager a guess that most Australians would uh, completely reject that notion. Um, you know, in terms of how we compare to other Western democracies with regulations on money and lobbying, Australia actually lags far, be far behind. Um, if we, we look at countries like the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada, they all have stricter regulations around, um, uh, you know, the regulating the influence of money and lobbying in our political system. And you know, in, in, in my mind, there's no doubt that the power, um, the historic power of the fossil fuel lobby is one of the major reasons that we haven't seen um, the common sense reforms, caps on political donations, caps on expenditure, um, more transparency on lobbying and transparency of donations that um, experts and uh, many Australians have supported for years and years. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's yeah, that's very true. And and so the name of this show is uh, Australia, the carbon pariah, and it's it's tough to see uh, to understand how others see you by looking in the mirror. But do you think Australia is in danger of becoming a pariah because of how the fossil fuel money has infiltrated our democracy? I mean, I think there's certainly signs of that, right? When we have um, the Australian government at the Paris climate talks being the only nation that is insisting that we use carryover um, Kyoto carbon credits. No other country is using those. And, you know, it's very clearly understood that we were pushing, Australia was pushing to use carbon credits in order to water down our 2030, um, you know, climate target. I do think other countries are absolutely looking at that and um, noticing that Australia, who could be a leader, we're well positioned to be a leader for renewables. We can be a major export of renewables. Um, it could be a major part of our economy, um, yet we're beholden at this point still to the fossil fuel industry. There's no doubt that they notice that. Yeah, yeah. And finally, just to go off script a little bit, what what do you think would, based on your experience and really deep knowledge of, um, you know, how the way that lobby groups and, and, and uh, industry groups, how they influence um, Canberra, what do you think would happen if, if that system disappeared, if it became no longer viable and the, the, the money dried up? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the kind of the question behind that, right, is like, does money have an influence on politics? And the the question is, the, the answer to that is absolutely yes, right? We've even seen the Minerals Council of Australia say in a parliamentary committee, the reason we give donations is to have better access and influence. Um, so, you know, if we had world, let's say we had world leading reforms to cap donations, to cap expenditure, um, I think that it would make a difference. However, I'm not naive, even with the best reforms, money will always find its way into the system. So I think that legislative change alone isn't enough. That's one key bit that, you know, we at the Australian Conservation Foundation were pushing really hard for these reforms. Um, but on the other side of that, you know, we as Australians really first have to be aware of this problem. And then we have to use our voice and our vote to, to let our elected representatives know that these tactics of corporate capture and corporate influence are just not acceptable. And there will be electoral consequences when they um, partake in them. Great answer. Um, thank you so much, Geraldine, for, for taking the time out. And uh, we'll leave a... Um, uh, a link so that people can donate to ACF. I, I personally donate to ACF. I think they're like one of the one of the best um, charities out there. So thank you so much for your work as a democracy campaigner and for coming on the show. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much to our guests, Tim Buckley, Ross Garneau, and Jolene Elberth. That show has been The Carbon Pariah, and you're listening to 3CR. Tune in next week, where Viv will be giving you more episodes of The Climate Action Show. I'm Kurt Johnson. Goongar Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter.